0: Classical composers and jazz musicians can often be thought of as having periods during their careers, such as Stravinsky's serial period, or Miles Davis's blue phase. Indeed, it can be the same in the rock and pop sphere, and one notable exemplar is an artist who went through many phases of musical development, often changing his physical appearance to demarcate these changes. Of course we're talking about perennial chameleon David Bowie. One of his most notable phases included breakthrough modes of composition and recording, embracing avant-garde sensibilities with a distinct German influence. He was also attempting to come off a drug addiction during his time in Los Angeles. Bowie reasoned he needed to change his milieu and move, get down to work, and start something totally different from what he had done before. He did exactly that, moving to Germany, and beginning what would later be known as David Bowie's Berlin Trilogy. The Dilettante, a Ferrochrome podcast. When speaking of David Bowie's Berlin Trilogy, this is often thought to mean his three albums, Low... Heroes, and Lodger. What can also be thought to be part of this body of work is his collaboration with the singer and his friend Hickey Pop on his two albums The Idiot and Lust for Life, which have their own lasting legacy. Bowie's last album recorded in LA was 1975's Station to Station which yielded its most notable hit Golden Years, a funk-inspired song which wasn't necessarily representative of the rest of the album. Bowie was quoted years later in saying there was always a song on each of his albums which pointed forward to what he would do next. In this case it was the title track Station to Station, Bowie's longest song clocking in over 10 minutes, with the first three minutes being an instrumental layered over the sounds of a train and industrial sounds. It is this song that points the way to his next direction, which entails moving out of the U.S. to Europe. Bowie takes with him his friend James Osterberg, who is better known under his nom de guerre Iggy Pop. Iggy is fresh out of the neuropsychiatric unit at UCLA in an effort to quit his heroin habit. Bowie, who has his own problems with cocaine, decides the move will do them both good, although they counterintuitively decide to move to Berlin, which Pop refers to as the heroin capital of the world. Before they arrive, they will stay in France at the Chateau d'Heroville recording studios where they will collaborate on Iggy Pop's first solo album, which Bowie will use as a dry run to test out thoughts and techniques for his own upcoming project. Iggy Pop's album, at Bowie's suggestion, will be named after the Dostoevsky novel, The Idiot. It is on The Idiot that the syllogism of Pop and Bowie will utilize sounds current in German music of the time, uncharitably known as Krautrock. The main exemplars of this were the group Kraftwerk, who had an unlikely hit about the German motorway system Autobahn in 1974. That and their 1975 follow-up album Radioactivity were constant fixtures on Bowie's personal playlist during his time in LA. The unabashed linearity of composition combined with electronic instruments and sound effects pointed to a direction that spoke to David Bowie with his cocaine fueled paranoia and increasing desire to isolate himself. These themes are evident on Iggy Pop's The Idiot, especially with the tracks Nightclubbing and Mass Production. album was recorded first, it wouldn't be released until after Bowie's next album, Low, in order to avoid any perception that David was influenced by Iggy, and not the other way around. Not letting the grass grow under their feet, Iggy Pop and Bowie threw themselves into recording another album for Pop that even better received Lust for Life, which is rightfully listed as one of Pop's crowning achievements both commercially and critically. The title track, which details the quitting of, to quote the song, the liquor and drugs, was used to great effect in the opening scenes of the film Train Spotting, and has been covered by a diverse range of artists from Motley Crue to Tom Jones. In a case of don't listen too closely to the lyrics, it's even been used by Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines for their television ads. The album was produced and co-written by David Bowie, who also provided keyboard work and backing vocals, as well as touring semi-anonymously as part of Pop's backing band while promoting the album. Bowie commences work on Low in 1977 at Chateau d'Aroville, but will continue on with it after moving to Berlin. It is there that he will record at the now famous Hansa by the Wall Studios, which were right near the still existing Berlin Wall. Joining David Bowie will be longtime producer Tony Visconti and a new collaborator, producer and self professed non musician Brian Eno, formerly of the British art rock group Roxy Music. Eno was the one to first suggest the concept of the recording studio as instrument, rejecting the accepted wisdom that it was just there to capture a musical performance. As the Beatles had done almost 10 years prior, Bowie, Visconti, and Eno plan to use the studio as part of a compositional tool, searching for ways to layer and texture sound without worrying too much about song structure or length. While Bowie will be influenced by Kraftwerk and other German artists, such as Kahn or Neu, he will not slavishly attempt to copy their sounds. Instead, for him, it is a starting off point to layer sounds in a way over a rhythm section which can be a bit funkier than Teutonic. With this approach, he comes out with a sound, especially on side one of low, which is unlike anything heard before in pop music, if indeed it is pop music at all. Bowie and Eno create a synthesis of both their styles while simultaneously mining the oeuvres of craft Philip Glass and Steve Reich. This is of course Bowie's strength, in finding and cultivating skilled collaborators and creating work that is different than what either of them would have done on their own. This is not to say that the music is divided equally halfway. Some works are definitely more representative of Brian Eno, such as the piece Vorvazah, which was mostly recorded in David Bowie's absence. The difference being that Bowie adds a vaguely Eastern European chanting and singing on the top. Tony Visconti adjusts the tape speed down during the vocal recordings so the boy's voice will be pitched upwards on regular playback to suggest a boy's choir there's also the apropos piece a new career in a new town which is a lurching groove layered with synthetic textures with Bowie playing harmonica on top. The simultaneous old and new sonority suggesting a nostalgic and future aspect that the title portends. When the completed recordings are submitted in November 1976 to Bowie's record company RCA, there is an understandable, for the time, reluctance to release it. Confident in his new direction, Bowie forces RCA's hand, as his contract unequivocally stipulates they must release it. After all the back and forth RCA releases it, the album cover shows a promotional still of Bowie from the film The Man Who Fell to Earth, which Bowie had starred in the previous year. He had used another photo from that film for the cover of the prior album Station to Station as well. Using it for the cover of Lowe doesn't seem to be some effort at cross-promotion for the film as it had already come and gone by the time Lowe is released. Bowie more likely found the image resonated with the musical themes of the album, isolation, alienation, and redemption. For something as darkly contemplative, artful, and as uncompromising as Lowe is, it does surprisingly well commercially, rising to the top 10 in the UK and top 20 in the US. Bowie stays in Berlin and plots his next move. That next move would prove to be the iconic album Heroes, often considered the centerpiece of Bowie's Berlin period and habitually overshadows the preceding low and following lodger in notoriety. There is some validity to this, especially as the title track, Heroes, has become so well-known and single-handedly inspired musicians that followed, such as Gary Newman, Nine Inch Nails, and even Neil Young. If David Bowie's method had been honed with his work on The Idiot, Low, and Iggy Pop's follow-up album Lust for Life, then it can be said to be somewhat perfected on Heroes. Bowie is now living full-time in Berlin and still collaborating with Brian Eno and producer Tony Visconti. As well as his usual backing musicians, he also, on Eno's recommendation, recruits guitarist Robert Fripp of the group King Crimson. Fripp, like Eno, is an inveterate manipulator of sound, altering his guitar tone with various treatments, one being a self-made analog tape delay system he calls Frippertronics. While Robert Fripp plays on much of the album, his most famous contribution is the lead guitar hook, although it sounds more like a distorted drone on the title track Heroes. The unique sound is achieved by Fripp standing close to his guitar amplifiers to inspire feedback from the guitar's pickups back into the amplifier. It's not a new technique, with many guitarists, from Jimi Hendrix on, using it to good effect on various recordings. The difference is Fripp uses physical distance from the amplifiers, which he marks off with masking tape on the studio floor, to represent different pitches of the resulting feedback. Stepping backwards and forwards to his marks, Different harmonics are reinforced, thus resulting in the lead melody sliding up and down. He repeats this exacting performance on three different tracks, which Eno and Visconti blend together to create the now famous lead melody. There is much other layering of instruments on the track, with Brian Eno's sweeping synthesizer adding a central atmospheric glue to the mix. All these instrumental layers and the rhythm section use up a lot of the available tracks on the tape, with Bowie only left with one track for the lead vocal. He's up to the task, with Visconti using a unique array of studio microphones spaced at increasing distances from David Bowie. Each one is run through a device called a noise gate, which will only activate the mics when certain volume levels are reached. Bowie plays these like an instrument, as the microphones farther away activate when he sings loudly and passionately, with more room sound being recorded by the more distant microphones the louder he sings. This all treads new ground in recording techniques, with the result potentially being a train wreck or a stroke of genius. It ends up being the latter, and sounds like nothing else in music that year. The rest of the album is not necessarily as well-known as the title track, but definitely sits comfortably alongside it, with music such as the instrumental Moss Garden, which sounds like a zen interlude among the Berlin-inspired alienation of the other tracks. It's notable for the lead instrument, a Japanese koto, Played by Bowie himself, over a wash of electronic treatments and synthesizers by Brian Eno, while far away the sound of a dog can be heard barking. When released, the album cover had a minimalist black and white photo of David Bowie in a mime like pose by Masoyoshi Tsukita, who had taken and would take many photos of Bowie throughout the years. To fully contrast David Bowie's work to the rest of the zeitgeist in 1977, one need only look to his guest spot on a Bing Crosby Christmas special on TV that year. While you may be familiar with the often viewed footage of the unlikely duo of Bowie and Bing singing The Little Drummer Boy, it's not often remembered that Bowie also performed Heroes on that same show, and a move presumably not personally vetted by Bing and definitely ranking as one of television's oddest juxtapositions. In the, event, this fantastic boy. the last part of this period for Bowie is the album Lodger, which, while considered part of the Berlin trilogy, was actually recorded in Switzerland and New York. While Bowie considered it the capstone to his Berlin period, and many of the same players are involved, Brian Eno, Tony Visconti, and Bowie's usual crack players such as guitarist Carlos Alomar, bassist George Murray, and drummer Dennis Davis. But the format will not resemble that of the previous albums Low and Heroes, with their Teutonic-influenced electronics and extended instrumentals, with the Lodger track Red Sails being the last look backward at that style. Indeed, Lodger has no instrumentals, But is more disco-inspired with a distinctly New York edge to it, a city where Bowie was increasingly spending more time. There are experimental forays, with Bowie using Brian Eno's Oblique Strategies cards, a method to encourage lateral thinking, some of which had phrases such as, try faking it, or use an old idea. With Bowie deciding to use the exact same chord progressions and sometimes key for some tracks, the song's Fantastic Voyage and Boys Keep Swinging being two examples. He also reused the backing tracks from his work with Iggy Pop on the idiot track Sister Midnight for the song Red Money. Whether this repurposing of prior material truly was an oblique strategy or a symptom of writer's block is hard to say. At any rate, the album is not well-received, with one Rolling Stone critic calling it Scattered and a footnote to heroes. Noted Bowie authority Nicholas Pig assessed Lodger undervalued and obscure practically from the moment of its release. Its critical reevaluation is long overdue. The Berlin Trilogy of David Bowie, which if one includes his two collaborations with Iggy Pop during that period, can actually be considered a five-part pentalogy. Through that lens, it's a substantive and impressive work by an artist who defied easy categorization. There can be no doubt that some works from his Berlin period could not have been made with the expectation of popular acclaim and may truly have been an effort at exercising an unhealthy worldview fueled by drug addiction and a collapsing marriage. On the other hand, David Bowie was an adept hand at self-mythologizing, using different personas to create interest in his work, both for him and his audience. Forty years ago, Bowie's sortie into the then-divided city of Berlin held a promise for personal and artistic redemption, and on the road, or Strauss, to redemption, produced some of his most important and enduring musical work. The Dilettante, part of the Faircrumb Podcast Network.